Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we have Mr. Daniel Buck, teacher, freelance author, and founder of the Chalkboard Review. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, there's a St. Vincent College-sponsored CLT coming up on January 9th. Applicants to St. Vincent College will be able to take the CLT for free. Registration details can be found on our website, cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. Welcome back to Anchored, the official podcast of the Classic Learning Test, where we discuss and debate issues at the intersection of education and culture. And today we have a very exciting guest, Mr. Daniel Buck. Daniel is a teacher and a freelance author who has written for such publications as the Manhattan Institute City Journal, The American Mind, and Quillette. He is an alum of the teacher education program at the University of Madison, Wisconsin. Daniel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Daniel, to begin with, can you give our listeners a bit of background on yourself? Was there a specific moment in time that made you realize you wanted to pursue a career as a teacher? I always get asked this question, and there was never a moment where I kind of actively decided that it's something that I wanted to do, but it was almost like uh, falling into the decision or realizing that it was the right thing to do. Growing up, going through high school, I was kind of always told, you're the math and science kind of brain. It was the classes that I was good at, so I got to college and majored in kinesiology. I was pre-med, and I was going through it. I remember looking back and talking with a friend about this on the run. I'm thinking I was on the school newspaper. I write poetry in my free time. Not good poetry, but I do. <laughs> um, I read books voraciously. And, you know, there's probably some commentary to make on education in here. But I realized, like, no, I'm, I'm much more into the humanities. My favorite classes were always English and history. I wasn't as good at them. Um, but they were the ones that I enjoyed the most, the ones that I enjoyed thinking about the most. And I had always enjoyed working with people. And it just seemed like the right thing to do to go into English education. So there's never this moment of, um, this is what I'm deciding to do actively and more like, oh, wait, that's the right path. That's what fits for me. So I guess that's where I'm going. So this year, you wrote an article for Claremont Institute's publication, The American Mind, entitled True Education is Beautiful. And in it, you provide a brief history of educational thought, elaborating on John Dewey's role in establishing a skill-centric view of education a view which has become ingrained, really, in our society. Uh, And you go on to note this, that since the canon wars of the 1990s, conservatives have ceded ground. Most modern debates focus not on what it is to be taught in schools, but on neoliberal policy like charter schools and voucher systems. I myself am an advocate for both, but lament the few conversations being had about curricula or educational philosophy. There is much discussion on the growth of educational alternatives today, but the vitally important question uh, really of curriculum is so often left out. Uh, in what ways should American society re-engage with this, this central question of what should kids be learning? I think we need to honestly just start with asking that question again. Um, no one really talks about it. 
we've lost this belief that there are things that we ought to know. And I, I detail how that happened in that piece as we moved into the 20th century and John Dewey popularized this idea that there isn't any content that is worth knowing in itself. There's no idea that is worth knowing in itself. And he believed more that content was merely a means to teach skills. He never really uh, explained what those skills were, but we're supposed to be training people for the economy, getting them ready for jobs. It begins with critiquing the ideas of John Dewey, asking again, aren't there things that we ought to know? And there's a slow growing but influential movement right now in education. Um, I think CLT is really a big part of it. Um, the, there are a lot of charter schools that rely on these ideas. So when I say, I, I guess I could break down what I mean by knowledge rich. Um, uh, I, I listened to a few of your podcasts this week, you know, binging them while I was walking my dog. And I heard Edie Hirsch come up a few times. So your listeners might be familiar with yeah. his, his work with the idea that schools shouldn't be teaching skills, but uh, should be teaching knowledge, bits of information and ideas. Uh, I worked English as a second language teacher for a while. And a lot of those kids, I worked some the higher level ones, you know, we might read something like To Kill a Mockingbird, and they could understand every single word in it, but they didn't know much American history. They didn't know what the Great Depression was. They didn't know about American Christianity. They didn't know who Herbert Hoover was. So a lot of the subtleties and intricacies of that book were lost on them, not because they couldn't pronounce the words, not because they didn't understand everything that was being said, but they just lacked this context. You know, the last thing that I think about in that question, there are thinkers that are doing work on this. So Edie Hirsch is still writing. Daniel Willingham is writing about this kind of stuff. And there's an initiative at the Aspen Institute that I find uh, really interesting. And they basically ask this question to the internet and they keep spreading it and asking people to list, what do you think every American should know? And there's this surprising consensus. Everyone should know about slavery. Everyone should know about the founding documents. You read the list and like, yeah, that, that makes sense. I think everyone, every American should know that. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking, and I was an education major as well at Louisiana State University, and, and I taught for 10 years, and I, I always heard and just assumed it to be true when, when modern educators say, you know, it doesn't matter what students are reading, just so long as they're reading something. It's just the skill. It doesn't matter the content. It's just the skill. Um, and then as I, I really started to rethink the basic purpose of education, I realized how strange that view is, you know, mm-hmm. um, that, that content is just irrelevant. So let me ask you this, a common theme that we've had, you know, from our very first episode of Anchored with, with Robbie George uh, is this, this theme, is this idea of how education really lays the ground for making civil discourse even possible. What aspect of education do you think is, is fundamental to restoring civil discourse in the U.S.? I think about this, so I'm an English teacher, so I think about this from a humanities perspective, and I think it, jumping off of what you just said, the idea that content doesn't matter or what kids are reading doesn't matter. You can look into the research and that just patently isn't true. Um, I recommend Timothy Shanahan has broken down a lot of these sort of choose your own adventure models of education where kids pick their own books and are just supposed to pick up literacy skills through osmosis. Um, He uses some strong language uh, condemning these ideas of education. Uh, Long story short, it, it, you don't learn to read well doing these kinds of things. But 
if we're talking about a return to civil discourse, I just, um, you might know this statistic better than I do, you know, how few people have actually read the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence. You know, there are, there are no first principles that we can even agree upon. We're arguing about what we should be doing, and yet no one actually knows these foundational ideas. Um, and that really it starts in the school. It starts in working primary sources back into it, working classic works of literature uh, that really engage with these big ideas back into the English language arts classroom. Daniel, I'm sure uh, many of our listeners are already following you on Twitter. Uh, if they're not, well, in fact, if you're not on Twitter, just stay off because it can be a toxic place. But if oh, you're good advice. Twitter, if you're already on Twitter, do follow Daniel Buck because he's a count that's actually, uh, it's good for the soul to follow Daniel. And he has a, a daughter coming, which is super exciting. First, mm-hmm. first um, and I've got to tell you just, just as a parent to a soon-to-be parent, you know, when I discovered classical education and I started just reading with my boys Aesop's fables, um, how quickly they they didn't want the new stuff anymore. They just wanted to read Aesop's fables every night. And then, and then as we started reading versions of the Iliad and the Odyssey, and it was because these stories are inherently better. That's why they survived the tests of time. Mm-hmm. They would have been forgotten to history, but they had this quality where every generation says, yes, we ought to pass these down. And I certainly don't want to be part of the generation that forgets to do that mm-hmm. um, generation. And I always feel like that's where we're at now is, is kind of risking that. So well, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, we often ask guests who are professors and teachers about their biggest classroom challenges. Uh, and the responses range from students' primary view of education as a means of practical vocational skills to society's obsession with grades as a sole motivating force for even uh, engaging with text. What have you found uh, to be your biggest challenge in the classroom? Can I uh, make a comment on your last comment and then answer your question? <laughs> Is that <laughs> acceptable? Yeah. <laughs> um, you were talking about how some books and stories are simply better than others and we should be passing them down through time. I don't think that's a proposition that many people would disagree with, that some books are better than others. And you know, I'll pick up some um, genre fantasy that I think just isn't the same quality as Shakespeare when I'm on a vacation. Like you said, there are some books that are better than others. There are you know, children's books even that are better than others. They don't all have to be Shakespeare. And I think a big critique of that is this idea that, oh, well, kids can't relate to the books because they're old. And I just, mm-hmm. I don't see that. Um, I think if a kid cannot relate to Romeo and Juliet, I'm not going to blame Shakespeare for that one. Honestly, I'm going to blame myself for that one. And that might be a bit controversial. But I think last year, a student of mine was expelled for a semester. Um, well, he wasn't my student. He was in somebody else's class. He was expelled and he came back to my class. Um, a different classroom when he was in. And instead of, you know, letting him follow his own adolescent passions and pick whatever book he wanted, I forced him to read Romeo and Juliet. I brought him through it with the rest of the class. Mm. You know, these, these men who are quenching the fire of their pernicious rage totally went over the kid's head at first, but we broke down the language. We kind of talked about what each word meant. And I saw this light click in his eyes and he went, oh, I know exactly how that feels. And he was bought in for through all of the fights, he was there. Through the, the adolescent, the Romeo and Juliet trying to figure out if they're in love or if they're obsessed, he kept talking about his own life. How can a kid not relate to that? Yeah, you know, uh, Ben Sass in his book, The Vanishing American Adult, he makes that same point. He's talking about, he's responding to an op-ed where a teacher says, 
how can my students relate to Romeo and Juliet? I teach, you know, 100% minority students. And Ben Sasters makes the point of, can they not relate to being in love with somebody maybe that their parents don't want them to be in love with? Can they not relate to these feelings of anger uh, and bitterness. Uh, it is so relatable. It is so timeless and so universal that we, we do a great disservice uh, to mm-hmm. think that these students, you know, students cannot relate to that. Well, let's go, let's go back to that, that question. You know, you're, and I think I'm thinking about it now, you, you may be one of the first actual secondary school teachers we've had on the podcast. Um, and so what, what has it been like for you in terms of your biggest challenge uh, that you face in the classroom? Yeah, this one goes more to the policy of things. And what's really been a challenge for me is honestly the, the, the monolith of one idea um, in education and the, the inability to question or do anything different. Um, mm-hmm. There are sort of these ideas, and again, they, some of these come back to pedagogy. We should let kids pick what they want to read, um, you know, going towards a more student-focused instead of a teacher-focused uh, way of running in the classroom. And I don't think those are necessarily inherently wrong. Um, I think there's a lot to be said about uh, Montessori ideas of teaching and project-based learning. They're not what I believe in. If a teacher wants to do that, if a family wants to do that, if another school wants to function that way, that's their, you know, they're entitled to do that. But in my district, there's one way to teach and one idea about education. And if I went to district over, it was the same thing. And if I went to district over, it was the same thing. And they're all just these carbon copy ideas of what education should look like. And even within my own district, there, were, there are four high schools and each one is exactly the same. And if you want to do something a little bit differently, you, you can't. Um, and your only options really are maybe to move to a private school or to find a charter school. You may have some plans uh, to put together a publication that will shine light on important yet overlooked aspects of education. Uh, can you talk a little bit about this? It came about when I started speaking out on Twitter. So I've really only been advocating um, in the public sphere since about this summer is when I made my first video. I've been writing for a while. I'll write for a publication. Sometimes I wouldn't even share it on my profile. And then I finally decided to start speaking out when another teacher said to me that they'd never heard an educator with another opinion before. And that just blew my mind. And I made a video basically saying, you know, I'm a conservative and I'm a teacher. This is what I think. And that video is over 60,000 views now. And I keep getting responses from people saying, thank you so much. Either I thought I was the only one or you know, we, so many people think this and no one is willing to speak out. And I'm even getting a lot of people who disagree with me saying several times, almost verbatim, I exist in an echo chamber and I follow you because somebody else is saying something different. And I know that I need that. And I'm trying to start a publication that's not conservative. That's not liberal. That's not Democrat. That's not Republican. You know, I have my own views, but I also think a free and open conversation, a diversity of opinions is really going to benefit public education. And I want to foster that discussion because of the response I got for the opinions that I was sharing. Um, it'll be called the Chalkboard Review. Keep your eyes out for it. You know, I've got to ask you, what, what was that like this summer? Because you really did, in a matter of a couple of weeks, you kind of just exploded onto the Twitter scene. When you're the lone voice saying something different, 
or you are one voice and you know a few other people like yourself, like Catherine Burbelson, like Coria Andrews, you're just one of these few voices. It, you question yourself. You get a lot of pushback mm. and you're not seeing these ideas affirm. There's no movement that you can attach yourself to. So that was the, it was just really affirming knowing that there are so many other people that think this way, that I'm not alone, that I'm not, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I'm always willing to reconsider. I changed my mind publicly on Twitter today. Um, <laughs> but it, it was, it was encouraging. And like you said, it was a bit surreal. Yeah. Well, that, that particular video, that kind of breakout video, I actually showed that video to a couple of people who I, I debate with uh, over education policy and ideas who you know, would describe themselves as, as liberal when it comes to education. And, and they found it very, very compelling. And so I, I think that, that, that it's really, really important that we have people uh, across the spectrum that can come together and, and listen and really, really consider. So more power to you, Daniel, on that front. I think it's, it's really courageous uh, and important. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Um, want to ask you a bit about, you know, we always do this when we, when we interview new guests. Uh, always curious to find out kind of what are, you, what are you reading on your own? Do you have time between your teaching and grading uh, and, and the writing that you're doing as well for just good old leisure reading? Uh, and if so, what are you reading? Often my leisure reading may not be considered leisure for others. Uh, I set a goal for HIT to read 50 books this year, and I think I'm on track. I haven't counted for a while to hit that 50 books, um, but I'm about to finish two. Uh, one's an education book. It's called Other People's Children by Lisa Delpit. It's a book that I've read that I have so vehemently agreed and disagreed with. My wife is probably sick of me stopping her and her reading and <laughs> ranting about how much I just despise one passage. And then two minutes later, just like praising it and like, oh my gosh, this is so amazing. It's a selection of passages and excerpts from Cicero's writings. Uh, I think it's just, it's a Barnes and Noble or one of those Penguin classics. And they kind of picked out some of the better chapters from his other books and compiled them into one. And it's, it's striking how, how relatable everything that he has to say is to our current moment. I'm always struck when I read old books, how little humanity has changed and how much we're just having the same conversations over and over and over and how much wisdom these old books um, can provide to us even in our contemporary conversations. I love, I love that. Um, now, has there, just been, has there been just one uh, single text that you would say has been most uh, influential to your journey in education? If we're sticking to education specifically, Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind is probably the most, that one flipped my whole worldview upside down when I was in college. But if we're speaking education, it's probably a tie between Edie Hirsch's cultural literacy, that whole flipping my brain from thinking about skills to thinking about knowledge and then Doug Lamov's Reading Reconsidered, which is a newer book and only came out in the last few years, that really took these esoteric and abstract ideas from Hirsch and broke it down in the nuts and bolts. How do you actually do this in the classroom? And that book, Edie Hirsch taught me how to think about education, mm. and Doug Lamov has taught me how to teach. Well, that's really well said. Um, and, and maybe predictions for the future, uh, Daniel. COVID has been so disruptive, not just to, to higher ed, but K through 12 as well. Um, what is education going to look like? How is it going to be different in, in five or 10 years uh, due to the way COVID has brought about disruption? I'd like to believe that 
to bring about a, a, a Cambrian explosion of sorts of, you know, models and ideas of teaching. Um, people, parents are getting an, a look into public schools. And I think many of them are not satisfied. They're, they have uh, not that their kids are doing the work at home and they have a view that they didn't before. And I think a lot of them are unsatisfied. There are these ideas of pandemic pods and micro schools that are suddenly becoming really popular. And I just have to believe that this copy paste approach to education that I was talking about earlier is just going to be broken and all of these new ideas are going to come through and not everyone has to do the classical education that you and I are an advocate for. Um, but there's going to be more than just this one idea. And I think society is going to be much better off for it, having a true diversity in education and intellectual diversity in education. Um, it gives me hope, honestly. Daniel, this has been a delight and congrats to you uh, and your wife again on the expected new edition. Uh, there is nothing better. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. We look forward to you joining us next week. CLT, reconnecting knowledge and virtue.